today's podcast, and I, I apologize, we haven't had a podcast in a little while. It's been a crazy couple of weeks for me. Uh, and for those of you that wa- are watching on Twitch, it's going to be a bit of a short stream today because I have a, a job interview at one o'clock um, that I got to do. Um, but I want to get this podcast done um, it's just because I haven't done a podcast in a while. But I want to give everybody fair warning. Um, this is going to be going over the leaked SCOTUS decision uh, that has the potential to overturn Roe v. Wade, which is the famous abortion case. Um, so inherently that's going to be kind of political and you know, me, I try and be as apolitical as possible. Um, and I'm going to try and present it in a way that is, is, is non-political as I possibly can, but this is something that, you know, a lot of people are passionate and I am a person. Therefore I do have a passion for this particular topic. Um, but that means I'm still going to try and present it in a way that is based in legal uh, understanding, uh, legal precedent, um, and and that. Um, and I'm going to break this up into two different things. The first thing uh, is going to be, I'm going to discuss the problematic security concerns and the privacy concerns of the leaked document itself and the problems that that can create for the Supreme Court in general. So that'll be the first half. It'll probably be a little bit less than half of the podcast. So I'm going to talk about that first. So if you're interested in that at all, you know, that's going to be pretty much not political at all. The second half, I'm actually going to go into the discussion, into the decision uh, of of the case itself. And um, so therefore, it, again, this is a very political issue and it's it's very... Uh, polarizing, right? There's very few people that are kind of right in the middle of, of Roe v. Wade. So, you know, if, if you don't want to hear the political side of it, you know, I'll, I'm going to give it like a, a bit of a break kind of in the middle of the podcast and you don't have to listen to that part if you don't want to. But again, I, I, I'm going to do my best that I can uh, because, you know, as, as a teacher, and and not that I'm sitting here being a teacher in this podcast. This is my forum. This is my media. I get to kind of say whatever the hell I want to say, which is great. But I still like to use it as an exercise of, of, of educating people. And my goal is to give people the tools to uh, think for themselves. Okay. And so I want to present it in a way that will allow people to think for themselves, come up to their, to an opinion on their self, well, on their own, excuse me, and not something that is, I'm trying to force feed them. All right. So I'm going to do the best I can. And, and when I give you my opinion on a matter, I'll, I'll make that very apparent that is my opinion on the matter. Um, and, and, you know, I'm, I'm always open for discussion on these kinds of things. You know, I, I, I think it's important that we have discussion right now. We're at a time where we're not having discussions with each other. We're just kind of yelling at each other. And I think that's a bad thing. So I want to try and, and, and use this as a way to kind of open up the potential for discussion on it. Um, but that being said, if, if, if you don't are interested in that, that's fine. I totally understand. You don't have to, to listen to the entirety of this podcast. You can just listen to the first half. None of it. I don't care. It's not a big deal. Um, and then just because I do have an employer, not that I have told anybody ever on my stream who my employer is or potential employers, I just want to make sure that this is clear that these are my opinions and not the opinions of my employer in any way. Um, 
And so that's kind of clear and, and, and all nice and, and fun and dandy. But anyways, let's uh, let's get into the discussion on the potential issues that the uh, the leak of the draft creates for for the, the the privacy concerns and the security concerns. Right. So the Supreme Court is really interesting in a lot of different ways. Right. Um, and so. Let me pull something up really quick. So I'm going to pull up the Constitution really quick, just in case you're unfamiliar. And the U.S. Constitution talks in Article 3 about the United States Supreme Court. And it kind of lists the powers of the Supreme Court um, and, and basically says what they can do, what they can't do, and then talks about treason. Um, it's broken down a little bit weird. Um, and the two basic things that you need to understand about the, the United States Supreme Court is they basically have the power to hear any case. Now, that, that's limited by a couple of different things, and the big thing is the type of jurisdiction they have, and the Supreme Court has two types of jurisdiction. The first is something called original jurisdiction, uh, and you can see that here in, in Section 2. Um, and so, um, well, I guess the second clause of, or second paragraph of Section 2. So original jurisdiction just means that you can bring that case to the Supreme Court before you go anywhere else, right? Um, so you don't have to take it to a lower court. You don't have to start in a state court and move it up, whatever. You can bring that case directly to the Supreme Court. And that's very limited, okay? And that's even more limited by the 11th Amendment, which I'm not going to show you because it's really short and there's not a whole lot to, to it. Um, and you really only can understand it if you've, Kind of looked at the history of it the 11th amendment kind of restricted what the original jurisdiction of the supreme court was because they kind of had a few debate debatably uh grammatical errors in section two which kind of confused what the original jurisdiction of the supreme court was but in essence what you can bring directly to the supreme court are um issues between two states um issues between states and another country between two countries, between the United States and another country, or the United States and a state, um, or any constitutional issues. Now, that last one is kind of weird. In most cases, if it's a constitutional issue, it has to go through the second type of jurisdiction that the Supreme Court has, and that's something called appellate jurisdiction. Appellate jurisdiction just means that it starts at a lower court and then appeals its way up. Right. So starts in a lower court, maybe a low state court, and then there's a decision there and then it gets appealed to the next court and then all the way up to the Supreme Court. All right. So for most constitutional issues and really any other legal issue, both issues of law and fact, which basically means civil and criminal cases, um, they have to go through the appeals process and it has to go to another court before it can come directly to the Supreme Court. But the Supreme Court, in certain cases, has the option to allow original jurisdiction for strictly constitutional questions. Okay, um, And that comes uh, mostly from the case of Marbury versus Madison. And if you've ever taken a, a history class or a civics class in high school or whatever, you learned briefly about Marbury versus Madison. Most people have heard it, 
right? There's there's very few cases that you can name that American citizens will know off the top of their head. The, the two cases that probably most people know are Marbury versus Madison, which they can rarely tell you what that case was or what it's about. Uh, and then the other case is obviously Brown versus Board of Education. Okay, then you can kind of maybe get into Roe v. Wade. But those are really the three big cases that most American citizens know about. So Marbury versus Madison was a, a convoluted case about somebody being appointed to Justice of the Peace in Washington, D.C. Person didn't get it, whatever. So the question became, um, there's a law that allows the Supreme Court to kind of force the executive branch, the president, um, to issue um, this order for justice of the peace. And the question, uh, truly presented in, in, and the court kind of sua sponte on its own made this, the primary question of the case is, um, do we have the right to review a law to determine whether or not it's constitutional or not? And at the end of it, um, that's what they did. Um, and it's it's very ironic because what happened was this law, the Judiciary Act of 1789, gave the Supreme Court this power to um, order the executive branch to do something that the executive branch has the power to do on its own. And the Supreme Court said, that's not constitutional. We are not allowed to have any power greater than what's listed to us in these articles of the Constitution. And then at the end of it, they said, because they gave us more power than what's listed to us in the Constitution, what we're going to do is give ourselves a power that's not listed into the Constitution, which is to review laws to make sure they actually fit within the Constitution. So there's there's a lot of irony within that case, and I wish I could remember uh, who it was, but um, uh, an old colleague of mine, uh, Professor uh, Furman Daniels, once said, uh, "Marbury versus Madison was decided incorrectly, but even if it was decided the other way, it still would have been decided incorrectly." And so it was a very very much a, a lose lose case, but. That is the case that allows the Supreme Court to uh, review laws to determine whether or not they fit within the realm of the Constitution. So ultimately, when we're talking about these cases, that's what we're doing. We're talking about laws and whether or not those laws fit within the realm of the Constitution, uh, either within the Articles of the Constitution, which is a limit on the federal powers of the government, or the uh, amendments of the Constitution, which is also limiting the federal government, but also limits state governments as well. Okay? So, um, that's just a quick breakdown of what the Supreme Court, how it works, what it does. In order to do this, there has to be uh, very specific procedures. There has to be very specific um, manners in which they operate. And one of those manners is there is a, a um, expectation of secrecy if you work for uh, the Supreme Court. And what happens is uh, right now, if you don't know, there are currently nine people on the Supreme Court. All right. Nowhere in the Constitution does it list how many people are supposed to be on the Supreme Court. 
It could be as little as one person and it could be as many as infinite people, right? They could change it. The, the president could say, you know what? I'm electing every person in the United States to be on the Supreme Court. And if Congress goes and vets every single person in the United States, we could all be on the Supreme Court. Um, there's nothing against that in the Constitution. So there's really no no limit to, to what there can be. And there's been a lot of different cases in, in history of presidents trying to stack the Supreme Court in their favor. Okay. So um, right now there's nine, nine justices on the Supreme Court. And each justice has um, clerks that work for them. Okay. And it's a very prestigious position. Um, and basically the, the people that become the clerk clerks of Supreme court justices, um, which in, in this case, uh, that's just a, it's like an internship almost, except for, for the most part, you get paid for it and become, it can become a job. So these clerks, um, they, um, help the justices make their opinions. They help them decide they not really decide the cases, but they do all the legal research. And a lot of times they'll write, um, the, um, write the opinion or parts of the opinion, uh, for the justice themselves, because the Supreme court can hear thousands of cases a year, right? They try and limit it to, to more in the hundreds, but there's a potential that they could hear thousands of cases in a year. Um, and so they've got a lot of work. And so the clerks often work with the Supreme court justices, um, on, on these particular cases. And so, uh, in this case, what probably happened was that there was probably a clerk working for one of the justices, probably not Sam Alito's justice or clerk, um, probably a clerk for another justice ended up taking this draft and leaking it to the media. Um, and it's interesting because there's actually no law against this. There is procedures within the Supreme court that prohibit this particular action, but there is no direct law that says you can't do this. And, and so the analogy to that is if you remember Edward Snowden back in 2013, when he leaked all of his documents, that was against something called the Espionage Act. And so there's a specific law that if you leak uh, classified information that you have access to, that is a violation, <clears throat> excuse me, of the law. There are laws that do the same thing. Uh, for congressional procedures, if it deals with classified information, okay. But the Supreme Court one rarely ever hears cases dealing with um, uh, national security, where you would have to have some sort of a security clearance to be even part of the case. Um, they usually defer that to something called a FISA court, which is free to, uh, uh, not Freedom of Information Act. It's uh, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. And all of those judges that work in those courts are appointed by the, the, the uh, chief justice, which is kind of the head of the Supreme Court. And it'll go through a process and they give great deference to that court. 
And the big reason why is because you have to have a security clearance to even go to a hearing within that court. And so if there's some sort of classified information or whatever, it's very restricted. All right. And so there are specific procedures, but the Supreme Court really doesn't hear those cases. Do they have the potential to? Yes. But the big problem is if the Supreme Court heard a case that dealt with uh, classified information, all of that information would have to become unclassified. Um, yeah, it would, it would become unclassified, not declassified, because it would be not optional. <laughs> um, so it would become unclassified. So there's really not a, a law that talks about the restriction of leaking information from a Supreme Court justice on what they're planning to do on a particular case. But the Supreme Court is a very traditional organization, okay? They they very much care about their traditions, even if they don't follow them that often. It's kind of like the unwritten rules of baseball, right? In, in baseball, you never watch your home run for too long. Uh, if your pitcher hits a batter, then one of your batters is fair game to be hit, you know? And that's one of the big things I really hate about baseball. I can't stand the unwritten rules of baseball. But the Supreme Court has a lot of these kind of unwritten rules. Um, and they're not... Um, some of them are written down. Some of them are, are direct policy of the Supreme Court. And one of those direct policies is, like, if it's not prepared to go out to the public, then don't release it to the public. All right? Only release stuff to the public that is supposed to be released to the public. So what that creates is it creates two problems. It creates a privacy concern and it creates a security concern. Now, up until a couple of weeks ago, I didn't know there was a difference between those two things. Um, but there is, um, from, from a technological perspective, from a legal perspective, there's not from a technological perspective, there is. From a technological perspective, the privacy is the data that's in involved within the leak itself. Okay, that means like names, let's say there's an address on here or uh, an email address or something like that. That's a privacy issue. A security issue is uh, a, a, a gap in the system, a hole in the system where information could potentially leak. Okay, and so... Um, within this system, now they've created two of those things. Now there's a hole that they have to try and fill. And there's the potential for personal information to be leaked. So if we go here and we look at this, all right, this, what this is, is uh, a PDF. Okay. And you can see up here, there's little staple holes. And it's not perfectly aligned. There's a little crease right there, which tells me that the draft that Politico, and this is Politico's website, okay, this is the people that that released it. Uh, they tend to be very much more left-leaning on most issues, um, but I think they are one of the more unbiased um, reporters out there. If you go look at the... the um, bias index. I don't, and there's a website out there. You can go look at it and you can do that on your own time. Um, but this is by Josh Gerstein 
Gerstein and Alexander Ward. These are the two authors uh, of this article. So I want to make sure I give them their, their appropriate um, credit. Um, and so they, they got this draft. And so what this tells me is they got a paper copy and that's probably a good thing, right? Because if they got an electronic copy, there's a lot of data that would be in the background and that's called, that's something called metadata. Okay. Metadata is data about data. So for example, whenever you take a picture uh, on your phone, there's a bunch of data about that picture. You can go and you can look up the metadata of that picture and it'll tell you things like who took it. It'll, you know, if you have GPS enabled, it'll tell you where you took it. It might even tell you what it was. If you have certain AR things that are involved with it, um, it'll tell you the type of picture it is. It'll tell you how big it is, how many pixels are involved, so on and so forth. That's all metadata. It's data about data. In the legal process, especially when you're working for the government, whether it's state or federal government, you have this thing um, that you kind of have to do, and it's called tracking changes. So if I were to bring up a Microsoft Word document, um, this is probably like way too in the weeds, but you know, if I'm writing something, and I go into layout design review. I think it's in review. Um, I'm not sure where it is. I don't want to spend too much time on it. Um, but there's a thing that you can do in here that's it's called track changes. And what that does is it it basically creates a really big document in terms of um like size uh whereby everything that has ever changed within the document is has saved. So let's say this is my word document and I want to delete this entire page. So, you know, I highlight it all and hit delete and I want to delete all of this information. So from the main page, it will be deleted, but you can go through track changes and you can bring that paragraph back. Okay. So you can basically see every place where somebody has edited this particular document. Um, and, uh, and so that that's a huge security risk. Okay because all government has to do that because there's a rule within the government that says you have to show the process. If somebody wants to, they can create a FOIA request for all of the track changes data for things that are unclassified. All right. Now, um, there are restrictions to where the government could say, no, you're not allowed to have that because it concerns national security, or there are certain workplace requirement restrictions that you could say, no, we're not going to follow that. Well, the Supreme court follows that same rule and they all have to get around. They all have to have a discussion about the topic, about the case. Uh, and then they have to make a decision. So really quick, how the procedure works for a case to get to the Supreme court this case started in Mississippi uh, and it got appealed all the way up to the Supreme Court. 
So it went through the Federal Court of Appeals, which is the second highest court in the country. And then when it goes to the Federal Court of Appeals, you have to apply for something called a writ of certiorari. And a writ of certiorari is asking the Supreme Court to hear your case. And uh, on what grounds are they going to hear the case? And the Supreme Court has two options. It can say, yes, we're going to grant your writ of certiorari, which means they're going to hear your case, or they're going to deny it, which means that the lower court decision is upheld. Okay. Just because your decision was denied cert once doesn't mean you can't apply again. It's going to be nearly impossible for you to get it again, but it is possible. All right. Um, and there is a time limitation to, to how long you can obviously do that. So when you see a word, this word here on writ of certiorari to the United States, that just means that the Supreme Court allowed them uh, to hear their case. So the next thing they do is they schedule something called oral arguments. Now, oral arguments um, can be set up either very quickly, like in this case, Oral arguments happened really, really fast. Um, or like most other Supreme Court cases, they're scheduled years out. Okay. Um, but on cases that the court feels that are particularly important, they try and get to them a little bit quicker than other cases. So, um, you know, I don't know exa the exact time in which it took for them to, to hear this case on, a, on uh, the oral arguments, but I think it was a matter of months which is a really, really, really fast case. All right. Very rarely does it happen that quick. Um, and then once your oral argument is set up, then you have to submit a brief, which is a very bad word because uh, a very misused word for what it actually is, because most briefs are somewhere between, you know, a hundred and a thousand or more pages. And that is laying out all of your legal arguments. Okay. Uh, and not only are are the two parties here, so in this case, the two parties are Thomas E. Dobbs, which is a state health uh, employee, and then you have Jackson Women's Health Organization, which is the person that actually brought the suit in the first case. Um, it's kind of reversed here because of how the appeals process works. You don't need to go into that all that right now. But those are the two parties to this case. So what happens is both of those parties have to write their briefs on how they feel that the Supreme Court should decide the case. And then you'll have something called amicus curiae briefs. Amicus curiae court, uh, a brief is means friends of the court. And so certain parties might be asked by the Supreme Court to say, hey, we want you to submit a brief on this matter on what you think. And that could be a specific department within the federal government or it could be a specific government organization, non-governmental organization, or it could even just be a law firm or an expert that has some sort of knowledge on the topic that the court values. Um, but kind of anybody is allowed to really submit an amicus curiae brief, whether or not the Supreme Court will consider it. That's a completely different argument. Okay, um, but they're they're going to submit those briefs, and so before oral argument, the court uh, which typically sets up limitations to how long the brief is allowed to be um but depending on the amount of arguments um 
that can be varied in what a lot of people will do to get around it is they'll they'll have a, a brief that matches the appropriate page number and then they'll create an appendix that includes everything else that they want to add. So the Supreme Court could have to read thousands of pages before oral argument. And in a case like this, that's really difficult to do. And that's, again, where those clerks come in um, to to kind of help out with the judges. They'll read those and summarize the, the legal arguments and give them to the justices um, so they can kind of have a better opinion. Once they've read the briefs, then oral arguments happen. And then oral arguments are typically restricted to what's in the briefs. Now, Supreme Court judges, justices, excuse me, kind of have a different rule that most other appellate court justices don't have. Um, and when you have an appeals case, and the, and, and the Supreme Court is no exception to this, the Supreme Court doesn't have a jury. It's just the judges. There's no jury in this case. All right. It's just the judges. So in most cases, uh, the questions that can be asked are very limited in scope uh, to a very particular procedure. The Supreme Court, a lot of times, will go outside of the scope that they set when they ask for the briefs from the parties. And so they will ask the lawyers that are representing either side their opinions on things that maybe they didn't talk about in their case briefs. And that's kind of fascinating. That's not something you see at really any other court, um, except for for really low courts when a case is first heard. Sometimes you'll see that, but in an appeals court, that's very rare to see. Okay, and so um, you'll see if you ever go read because you you the the Supreme Court, the U.S. Supreme Court doesn't allow uh, photography and it doesn't allow video recording. And it doesn't rec uh, allow audio recording. All they have is court stenographers and they write everything down. Okay. You can go watch this. So, you know, Preston, if you ever want to take a day off, you can go down to the Supreme Court and you can go and watch a case. Um, and I, I suggest doing it because it's really, it's a fun thing. I actually have not ever, I've, I've not done it yet. I really would like to. Every time I've been in DC, they've not been in session. Um, but it's a, it's a fun ex experience and you can go in and you can watch the, the whole thing and you have to be very quiet and you can't, um, you know, do anything really, but watch the case, but you can do it. Uh, and so they're very restricted in, in the kind of information that gets leaked out and you kind of have, basically you can just walk in. Um, I mean, there's a line there, but you don't have to like buy tickets or anything, you know, if sometimes for like really big cases like this one um they would be there's gonna be a huge line so you might not make it in but if you just go to some random case on some weird esoteric business law um you're probably gonna be able to get in and see the 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 case um and it's just really fun to see the interaction between the judges and the the um lawyers because it's a totally different procedure than what you see in movies and tv shows it's a lawyer that's standing up on a podium. They have an uh, argument prepared and uh, they start making their argument. And within the first 30 seconds or less, the judges start asking questions and just interrupt the, the attorney while they're talking the entire time. And a lot of times the goal of these justices is to throw the attorney off. 
And so it's a high stress uh, situation. And if you're not prepared for it, you suck. Um, well, you, not, not that. Let me take that back. You don't suck, but it can be really, really bad. Um, and, and honestly, in law school, this is one of my favorite classes was appellate procedure. Um, it was a blast because we kind of, we got to do mock trials and it was a lot of fun. And I think if I could have done that, you know, I might still be an attorney today, but, um, nevertheless. So anyways, uh, that's the procedure. Okay. And so you can see when they're restricting, even in 2022, if they're still restricting photography, if they're restricting video recordings, if they're restricting audio recordings, they very much care about their privacy. So when something like this happens, this is a blow to the court. And arguably, this has never happened before. And I say arguably because I'm 100% certain that it's happened before. I can't give you a time and date to when it happened. Uh, they might have been closed off before it really became an issue. Um, the closest I can come up with to a similar situation would be the Pentagon Papers case. Um, but that still had some differences and that wasn't a direct opinion from the Supreme Court. Um, and so it creates a huge security concern. And not only that, but you see here, this is a first draft, okay? A lot of times they go through five, six, seven drafts of a particular holding, okay? This is the first draft, meaning for some reason, uh, Justice Alito in this case, sorry, I, I have a fundamental problem calling him Justice Alito. Sam Alito was determined to be the person to give the opinion of the court the opinion of the court that is the thing that that's the winning side okay that's the winning side the winning argument and it gets really convoluted and i can explain it but it's going to take me an hour to do so so just trust me when i say it can get very convoluted so this is the kind of winning opinion as it were now this uh, Sam Alito might not actually be, be the person that's giving the opinion of the court. Okay. The side that he was on might be the side that is giving the opinion of the court, but there's a potential that he's not even the person that's writing the opinion of the court. And this is going to be changed to a concurrence, or if he is on the losing side, it could change to a dissent. So there's a lot to this that we don't know yet. So all of the opinions that we gather from this particular paper need to be taken with a grain of salt because things could change. And again, what you see if you read this, and it's 98 pages, his uh, opinion, I believe, is 45 pages, I want to say. Uh, and then there's one concurring opinion in here, I believe. Um, and I'll be 100% honest, I haven't read... The, the entirety of it all. Uh, I've just read enough that I got super angry and wanted to make a, a podcast about it. And so I'll probably talk about it again. But like I said, you have to read this entire thing with a grain of salt because there's a lot of procedure left in this case. Okay. And like I, as I was saying, because this is just a first draft draft, um, 
Sam Alito might have put things in here that were his personal arguments and they kind of highlighted a couple of those places in here where those were his personal opinions that are going to be taken out of the final draft of the opinion. Okay. So that's, that's a big problem right there because there's a lot of misinterpretation that can come from leaking this particular document. And as the Supreme court, you really don't want that. You want to have people be able to rely upon the documents that you really, you release, um, and be able to take those documents that are released and be able to, um, utilize that information in the appropriate manner. Okay. So basically how, and to kind of discuss that a little bit more, I have to explain how the United States legal system works, how our, our legal system works is, um, you know, the, the, the constitution in article six, um, here, the, in Article 6 of the U.S. Constitution, this Constitution, the laws of the United States which shall be made pursuant thereof, and treaties, all treaties made, or which shall be made under the authority of the United States, shall be the supreme law of the land. Okay, again, you might remember from civics class, this is the supremacy clause, okay? The supreme, or the, the, the Constitution is the supreme law of the land. Nothing is higher, as far as the United States is concerned, than the U.S. Constitution, so when the Supreme Court is making its decision on something that is conflicting with the Constitution, what they're doing is they're saying, all right, what does the Constitution say on this issue? What does the relevant law say on this issue? And do those things, two things, go together or not? Sorry, my dogs are fighting. Sorry, they needed to break up the tension, I guess. Um, so so they that's a big deal because that becomes law, that interpretation that the court gives of what the 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 law says and how it relates to the constitution becomes the modern interpretation of the law. That's an important thing, right? Our constitution is only like if you print this whole thing out, it's only like six or seven pages. It's not that long. All right. The, the, the number of laws that we have can easily fill up a huge room. Okay. And then you add in the number of regulations that could fit, fit an entire city. Okay. There are lots of regulations, lots of laws. And so there's, there's a very specific procedure on how all of those things go. But because we have a common law system, what the court says is what goes. How the Supreme Court defines a word like murder is the court that all, or the term that all courts have to use. Okay. That's the definition that all courts have to use. So, what the Supreme Court says is very, very, very important. Okay. And so people now, when they read this draft, are going to be confused because 
is this actually what the Supreme Court's saying or is it not? Right? This came from Sam Alito's office. Okay. So this is literally just his opinion on the matter. Okay. And so again, we don't know if this is going to be the actual opinion of the court or not. So I want to make sure that's very clear. And that again, that's the big security concern that we have here. That's the big privacy concern we have here. The next security and privacy concern on this is that when all of these justices up here talk, they have to have faith that what they say within the chambers of the Supreme Court is going to stay within those chambers. They're allowed to have those opinions there, those discussions there, and those discussions and those opinions are going to stay there. They're not going to get leaked. Okay. The Supreme Court is supposed to be an apolitical branch. Okay. Politics is not supposed to be within the Supreme Court. So on this court, you have four quote unquote liberal judges, justices. You have four conservative justices. And you have one kind of centrist leaning more to the right chief justice. All right. But that's not supposed to matter. Okay. What, what they do to kind of get around it is they call it something called jurisprudence and that's legal philosophy. And that's just a different way of saying this is my political opinion through the words of legal words. Okay. <laughs> so that's what they, that's what they do. All right, but it's not supposed to be political. So if Justice Kagan uh, disagrees with whatever Justice Kavanaugh says, you know, she's not supposed to go leak to the entire world. Well, in the chambers, Justice Kavanaugh said this particular thing, which means he doesn't care about this entire group of people. Okay, that defeats the purpose of the Supreme Court without those rules and traditions that they have the Supreme Court doesn't become as effective as it is supposed to be. All right. That's the issue that we're dealing with in terms of the security that we have, uh, the security concerns that we have when things like this leak. Okay. Um, but it's a, it's a fast because we've got it. It's a fascinating view into the process of what happens on the Supreme court. It really is a fascinating view into the process of the Supreme Court. Um, and if you can read it as that, if you can read it as this is a look into what the Supreme Court procedures are like on a level that almost no citizen of the United States has ever seen, then this is a really fascinating read. Okay. And you can read it like that. And so I, 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 before I get into my discussion on the the decision and the words and the, the law that is talked about within uh, this case, you know, I, I do want to say that you have to read this as if it is just a draft. You have to read it as if this is just somebody writing what their opinion is on a particular topic that may or may not be what the Supreme Court actually says. 
and that you're getting a really unique view of what's going on inside the Supreme Court when they come up with these decisions that they make, okay? So think of it like that, okay? Don't jump to conclusions on either side, all right? That's my big like point, I guess, out of all of this. Don't jump to uh, a conclusion yet. Wait till the official opinion comes out. Treat this as nothing more than just insight into the process of how the Supreme Court operates, all right? Um, because at the end of the day, even if Sam Alito is writing the, the majority opinion for the court, all of these other justices up here have the option to say, we're not putting that in there. You have to take that out. Okay. Um, and so there, there's a lot of editing to go on within this, this particular opinion. Okay. And so I, I, I think that the, the Supreme court's going to have to come up with new rules for how they, um, transfer documents to each other for editing for, you know, whatever. Um, but ultimately what that's going to come down to is, um, th those rules that they're going to have to create. I think they're going to have to open up the ability for people to record inside the courtroom. I think that that's a tradition that is long past been irrelevant and not necessary. Okay. Uh, I understand part of the reasoning why, um, but there's, there's really easy processes in which you can kind of validate who's in there, who gets to record and creating official recordings, um, you know, that the, the Supreme court can kind of vet in some way or another. But ultimately this is proof that the Supreme court, when it comes to, to things like security are not up to 2022 standards. And again, the big problem with this being leaked is now this has become an even more political issue. And yeah, abortion is fundamentally a political issue, but the Supreme Court is supposed to sit here and answer the question on is abortion constitutional or not within the realm of the law itself. And when you have this type of leak, you're kind of ruining that impartiality that the Supreme Court is supposed to have. Okay. So that's my two cents. I could go on for much longer on that, but I want to kind of move on to discussing um, the legal implications of, of if this actually is the direct opinion that's going to be released by the court, which again, I don't think it really is. So if you don't want to hear my legal analysis of this, and the, the problematic legal concerns that I have that can lend itself to being an opinion um, or a, a something that you might disagree with, then feel free to, to leave. I've, there's already been three people that have left, and that's fine. Um, and, and you don't have to listen to this. Again, I, my goal here is not to change your mind. My goal is to simply say, when I've read through this, this is my thought process. This is the concerns I have. And this is what, what I think the procedure needs to be uh, to be corrected. 
And at the end of it, I'm going to give my opinion on the matter. And again, I don't, you're not expected to, to believe the same thing. I believe this is a free country. We all have freedom of thought. We have freedom of expression. And I'm, I'm not going to say freedom of speech because people are consistently misusing that term because they don't know what it actually means. Um, but, but we have those things. And so I will give that. And, and so I, I ask that if, if you're going to stay and listen to that part, that part of the podcast or, or the stream or whatever, um, that you just be respectful of that. And I, I promise you, I will always be respectful of your opinions unless your opinion is something that is predicated and based solely on hate of, of immutable characteristics. Um, but outside of that, I'm, I'm, I'm always happy to, to listen to what other people have to say and have conversations just as long as you're not going to get upset about the conversation. And you have to understand that when you argue with me, I am a lawyer. I was trained how to argue. <laughs> and so that can frustrate a lot of people. Um, and it, I had friends that hated arguing with me at law school because I was just kind of good at it. Um, so you just have to kind of understand that. But if you don't want to listen to this part, I, I totally understand. I, I get it. Um, it, it because it is going to have some opinion um, in it, but I'm, I'm going to try and keep it as factual and, and based on um, um, legal concepts as much as possible. All right. So uh, I'll give you a quick break to turn it off. I'd like to thank my sponsor, um, for this podcast, uh, which is my wife, uh, because she works, um, very difficult job, uh, and to, uh, pay the bills. I work too, I promise, but without her, I wouldn't be able to sit here at, uh, 11 o'clock on a Friday, uh, and, and have a podcast to a bunch of my friends mostly. So, um, I'd like to thank my sponsor, my wife. Um, I, I appreciate everything that you do. And uh, thank you for giving me this opportunity. Um, there's only if 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 you want to help support my support sponsor, unfortunately, you kind of have to support me. So <laughs> that's the kind of roundabout way thing of that. Um, so if you want to support my my sponsor, my wife, uh, please subscribe to my channel. All right. So, all right. Now we're going to get into the discussion. How's it going, Remorse? How are you? Thanks for joining us. So let's get into the discussion of the language of um, Sam Alito's um, opinion, first draft opinion uh, of the court. Okay. And again, I want to reiterate this for the seven billionth time. This is a first draft. Okay. This is leaked. This is not the official opinion of the court uh, yet. It could be in the future, but currently this is not the official opinion of the court. This is subject to change. Um, it's subject to not even being the actual opinion of the court. Okay. It's just a draft and a first draft at that. If you ever writ wrote papers for high school, college, whatever, you know, the difference between a first draft and a final draft. All right. And in terms of the Supreme Court, there's usually about five drafts in between those two things. Okay. So this is a first draft, but I want to talk about this, um, 
the 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 legal arguments and the language that's used within this okay so i'm going to kind of quote a few things here and there so sam alito says abortion presents a profound moral issue on which americans hold sharply conflicting views not wrong some believe fervently that human person comes into being a conception and that abortion ends at ends an innocent life Others feel just as strongly that any regulation of abortion invades a woman's right to control her own body and prevents women from achieving full equality. Still others in a third group think that abortion should be allowed under some circumstances, but not all. And those within this group hold a variety of views that are uh, about the particular restrictions that should be imposed. Okay. So Sam Alito breaks it into three groups for the most part. Nothing to disagree with there uh, at that point. Okay. So he kind of goes into a bit of a, a discussion of kind of the history of abortion a little bit, mostly um, some of it's, it's not super correct, but um, I'll get to that. I'll, I'll come back to that in a second. Um, and so I'm going to, I'll talk mostly about the things that are highlighted within the document itself that are highlighted by um the authors of of this politico article again uh in case you are wondering it's supreme court has voted to overturn abortion rights draft opinion shows um and it's written by josh gerstein and alexander ward okay so if you want to go read that article you can okay so they highlight here at the time row 30 uh, at the time of roe roe v wade is the case that allowed um uh, that that's basically said abortion was constitutional, okay, and that it was illegal for states to completely restrict abortion. And if you read the case, it's a very convoluted case, uh, and it's it's a it, it's a difficult case to read. Uh, the cases that are the progeny of Roe v. Wade are even more difficult to read. Um, like I. You know, at one point I wanted to be a medical doctor, but I realized that I don't like blood and I don't like needles and I probably couldn't be a doctor because I don't like those two things. The progeny of the Roe cases talk in great detail of the types of abortion that there are. And those are very, very difficult cases to read if you're squeamish. So I'm forewarning you about that now. But anyways, it says uh, at the time of Roe, 30 states still prohibited abortion at all stages. In the years prior to that decision, about a third of all states had liberalized their laws, but Roe abruptly ended that political process. It imposed the same highly restrictive regime on the entire nation, and it effectively struck down the abortion laws of every single state. Uh, as Justice Byron White uh, aptly put in his dissent, the decision represented the exercise of raw judicial power, and it sparked a national controversy that has uh, embittered our political culture for half of a century. All right. So a little bit of history on this. Um, and a little bit of a breakdown of the legal arguments of Roe v. Wade. Um, so the legal argument is, should states have the right to regulate abortion on their own? Or should there be a federal standard for how states are allowed to uh, restrict abortions. Okay. At the end of the day, that's the legal argument. 
do we leave it up to the states or do we say the federal government ultimately rules on this particular opinion? Okay. And in particular, in this case, the federal government, meaning the U.S. Constitution. All right. So that is the legal argument. All right. That's not the political argument. That's not the philosophical argument. That's not, you know, the, the religious argument. That is just the legal argument. All right. So in here, uh, they say that 30 states still prohibited abortion at all stages. In the years prior to that decision, about a third of the states had liberalized their laws, but Roe abruptly ended that political process. Um, and so when, so I've taught a couple of classes loosely based on rhetoric and what rhetoric is, um, rhetoric is just argumentation. Okay. It's how you make an argument. And there's a, a really good book that if you're into arguing at all, like I am, I highly suggest you read. I always had my students read it. Um, and uh, the, the book is called, um, let me pull it up. Uh, the Art of Deception by Nicholas Capaldi. So this is the book. Okay. The Art of Deception, an Introduction to Critical Thinking. And this is the newest version. I prefer, I think it's the second edition, this one. Um, because the second edition kind of goes into some stuff that, that the third edition takes out. But anyways. Um, so that it's, it's, a, it's a phenomenal book. So one of the things that you do is if you want to explain something that amplifies certain numbers and mitigates other numbers, what you do is you change how they're presented. Okay. So in this, he says row 30 states. Okay. They're 30, three, zero. It's just the numbers. 30 states still prohibited abortion at all stages. Okay. What that's meant to do is that's meant to mitigate that number. It's made to make that number look small. So in the years prior to that decision, about a third of all states had liberalized their laws. What that does is that's meant to say, look, at the time, a third of the states, which sounds actually bigger than 30, even though it's less than 30, significantly less than 30, it makes it sound like a third is big but it's really not. And so you can see in this argumentation, the rhetoric, what, what Sam Alito is doing is he's kind of modifying the numbers to make it look a specific way to the reader. Okay. And he does that a number of times throughout from what, from as far as I've read. Okay. And so, uh, in this last part that's that's below this, the argument of Justice Byron White aptly put in his dissent, the decision represented the exercise of raw judicial power. So this goes back to another legal argument and a huge concern. Does the Supreme Court have the authority to what is called um, it's called uh, judicial legislation? Okay, legislating from the bench, and what that means is that you're creating laws. Uh, through your decision. And this is a very, very conflicting constitutional problem. 
The big issue is that it relates directly to things that are called substantive due process, due process rights. Substantive due process rights are all of those rights that we have as U.S. citizens that are not listed to us in the Constitution. Okay, But the problem is, with substantive due process rights, what that looks like on its face is that the Supreme Court is behaving like the legislator and creating laws that they have no job doing. And again, that was the big problem with um, Marbury versus Madison. They felt like the court was legislating from the bench. They felt like the court was offering an opinion on something that allowed them to behave like the legislator, which it kind of did. But um, nevertheless, that's always a big argument. Is the court allowed to legislate from the bench? Fundamentally, if you look at the Constitution, no. Nowhere here in the third article of the Constitution does it say the legislator is allowed to make laws, okay? In fact, that's up here in Article 1 of the Constitution somewhere. It says, uh, to make all laws by which shall be necessary and proper for carrying on to execution the foregoing powers. So, specifically, the legislator has the power to make the laws, okay? Not the Supreme Court. But, I refer you next to Clause 3, or Paragraph 3, depending on how you want to look at it, of Section 9 of the Constitution. This says, no bill of attainder ex post facto law shall be passed. Okay? Bill of attainder is a law that targets a specific group of people or a specific person. All right, so you can't create a law that says Preston's not allowed to do this particular thing. Okay, that would be an illegal law. That's in a bill of attainder. An ex post facto law is a law that would be created that punishes people for doing something in the past that was legal at the time. So let's say um, tomorrow the legislator passes a law and says it's illegal to drink alcohol. Okay. So prohibition 2.0, what they couldn't do in the law is say, all right, the law is enacted tomorrow. And the law says that if you have drank alcohol in the past 30 days, you are still guilty under this law. Okay. So they can't retroactively make something illegal. That's a, an ex post facto law. That tells us a lot about our legal system. Okay. The prohibition of ex post facto laws means that our legal system functions on the idea that everything is legal unless it has a law about it. Okay. Let me re-say re that. Everything is legal unless we have a law about it. Okay. Said it another way, the only things that are illegal are those that have laws about them. Everything else is legal. Now we have a lot of laws, so there are a lot of things that are illegal. All right. But that's a very important thing to understand. Why is that important to understand? That's important to understand because when you talk about things like this exercise of raw judicial power, legislating from the bench, the Supreme Court cannot legislate from the bench because of that exact legal theory set out in the prohibition of ex post facto laws. The Supreme Court can only say, yes, this is something constitutional, or no, this is not something constitutional. 
In this particular case of Roe v. Wade, the court said, this is constitutional. Abortion is constitutional. We are allowing it. Which means that you can't create a law absent due process. And in this particular case, due process would be a constitutional amendment. Absent due process, you cannot take away a person's right to have an abortion. Okay? That's not creating law. You cannot create a law to allow something. You can only create a law to disallow something. So the only time you can argue that the Supreme Court is legislating from the bench is a time in which they're creating a law that prohibits something. Okay? So, if you're savvy, what you're thinking is, well, they're prohibiting the states from making the laws. Yeah, but that's not how that works, okay? They're prohibiting the states from prohibiting something, okay? So it's a double negative. <laughs> so therefore, it's it's in line with that underlying legal philosophy of the prohibition against ex post facto laws, all right? So that's a tricky thing. But at the end of the day, that doesn't really help us a whole lot. Why doesn't it help us a whole lot? Because the question fundamentally within Roe v. Wade and the abortion cases is, does the federal government have any interest constitutionally in protecting abortion or not? Or is that something the Constitution says lies specifically with the states? Okay, that's the question that we have to answer. And that's the question that the court is supposed to be answering in this particular case. All right. So I want to go back and talk about a case that happened before Roe v. Wade. Okay. And it's important to talk about this case because it's the case that ultimately led to... um that ultimately led to, sorry, I can never find the button that says read transcript. There it is. Um, so <clears throat> now I forgot what I was saying. I shouldn't have done that. Um, so whether or not it becomes a state's issue or not. Uh, oh yeah. The, the, the other case I wanted to talk about because it, it basically created uh, Roe v. Wade is a case called Clark v. Griswold or not Clark v. Griswold Jesus Christ <laughs> as you can tell I'm a big family a big fan of um, the National Lampoon's vacation movies Clark or uh, Griswold versus Connecticut Griswold v. Connecticut okay very important case all right you can look it up on your own time so what Griswold versus Connecticut says is that uh, basically people have a right to privacy in their own home. So there's what they call in the case something called a penumbra. An area in which the federal government and the state government 
have no right to be. It's a shadow that they cannot look into. All right. So what happened in Griswold's versus Connecticut is um, Griswold's, and they did this intentionally because they wanted this to go to the Supreme Court. There was a law in Connecticut that said that it's illegal for any doctor to prescribe any sort of um, contraceptive, okay, birth control, condoms, whatever, anything that pro that makes it difficult to have a baby, okay. So that's what that case talks about, and the court said that the government, either the state or the federal government, have no right to be in the doctor's office where the doctor is talking with the patient. The federal government has no right to be in the bedroom with these two people or however many people they might invite into their bedroom. Those are not places where the federal or state governments belong. Okay. This is the first time in American history, Griswold versus Connecticut, which was decided in 65. Okay. That was the first time in American history, nearly 200 years after the United States was created that we had some sort of law that said that we have a right to privacy as humans, as American citizens, that we have a right to privacy, meaning there are places that the federal and state governments cannot come into. Okay. Very important case. A lot of people, when you ask them about their right to privacy, they might point to here, the fourth amendment. Okay. All that means is that if the government wants to look at your stuff and your things, they just have to go get a warrant to do it, okay? When they have to prove that you did something wrong at some point. Hey, that's not a true right to privacy. So Griswold versus Connecticut threw two things. First, the Ninth Amendment, okay? The Ninth Amendment says the enumeration of the Constitution of certain rights certain right shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. In essence, what this means is just because it's not in the Constitution doesn't mean it's not a fundamental right for American citizens. Okay? The Constitution is not an exhaustive list of rights for citizens of the United States. The Bill of Rights is a list of rights guaranteed to the people because it was an agreement between the anti-federalists and the federalists, because ultimately the federalists won in the constitution. So they said, we need to make sure that there are listed rights for people in the States, but this is not an exhaustive list of those rights. All right. That's a big deal. That's a very important thing. That's where we get all of these substantive due process rights. Okay. The next thing we have is here in the 14th Amendment. Okay, the 14th Amendment was passed after the Civil War. Okay, shortly after the 13th Amendment that prohibited slavery. Okay, the 14th Amendment basically says a bunch of different things, but one of the big things does is it has a, a second um, due process clause. It says, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. Uh, nor despair, deny to any person within his jurisdiction the equal protection under the laws. Okay, What that means is that prior to the 14th Amendment, the Bill of Rights was very loosely um, 
applied to the states. So the states could kind of pick and choose how they wanted to use the Bill of Rights. After the 14th Amendment, it said the states have to follow the Bill of Rights. Okay. Not only do the states have to follow the Bill of Rights, but they have to follow those laws in the Ninth Amendment, those rights in the Ninth Amendment that are guaranteed to people that are not enumerated, not listed in the Constitution. Okay. So Griswold versus Connecticut says we have a right to privacy as American citizens. There are places where the government doesn't belong in our lives. I think most of all of us can say, yeah, we agree with that. Okay. Roe v. Wade is actually a privacy case. It's not about abortion. It is, but it's not. The decision in Roe v. Wade was ultimately decided on this is not a place where the federal government has a right to regulate. Okay? Through that, it became a substantive due process right. Okay, now substantive due process rights are really tricky. Those are all of those rights that are are very heavily regarded as um, rights that are um, not listed in the Constitution here in the Ninth Amendment. But that's where we get a lot of the arguments of um, legislation from the bench. Okay, and so abortion is probably one of the most common, uh, but other types of um, Substitute due process rights, just so you know that there's others that exist. You have the right to privacy that we just talked about. The right to education. That's another one. Every citizen in the United States uh, or every person that wants to be part of the United States has a right to education. Uh, the right to marriage. Okay. Uh, very ironically, um, the right to own handguns is actually a substantive due process right. And I'll talk about that in another podcast. Um, let's see. Marriage taxation actually is a substantive due process, right? Believe it or not. Um, but all of those things. Uh, and then, and then there's this old theory called economic substantive due process, which is kind of a different thing, but that's like freedom to enter into contracts. Okay. Basically, the government cannot interfere with you entering into contracts with other people. All of those things, those are substantive due process rights. All right. So we have a lot of them. Those are in the Ninth Amendment, the things that are not enumerated to us in the Constitution and are explicitly stated there, but are nevertheless part of the Constitution. Okay. They're part of our rights that we have as American citizens. All right. So going back to Dobbs v. Jackson. Uh, I'm trying to find the language that is used by the Jackson case brief. I can't find it right now. Basically, the Jackson case brief says they have two choice. They they only the court only has two choice choices, and so it, it forced the decision to become 
a uh, uh, bifurcated decision. It was a zero-sum game. There's going to be a winner and there's going to be a loser. And the court could either decide in favor of upholding Roe v. Wade or the court could decide in, decide to overturn Roe v. Wade. Okay. So, oh, there it is right there. Brief for respondents, uh, page 43. They contend that no half measures are available and that we must either uh, reaffirm or overrule Roe Ro and Casey. Casey is a secondary uh, abortion case in 92. It helped to try and refine Roe, but the court was so split in the decision that nobody really gives a shit about that case. Um, so the next paragraph is the one that most people are most concerned about when they read this case. It says, we hold that Roe and Casey must be overruled. The Constitution makes no reference to abortion, and no such right is implicitly protected by any constitutional provision, including the one on which the defenders of Roe and Casey now chiefly rely, the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment, which is what I was talking about, substantive due process. That provision has been held to guarantee some rights that are not mentioned in the Constitution, but any such right must be, quote, deeply rooted in this nation's history and tradition and, quote, implicit in the concept of ordered liberty, which comes from Washington versus Glicksburg, which uh, quotes like 27 other cases. That's just the most recent uh, case. Uh, I believe that's a education case, but I can't remember off the top of my head. Um, so anyways. That right there, that clause is the paragraph that the court is, or that everybody's really scared about within the court because they're directly saying we're going to overturn uh, Roe and Casey. Okay. And so the argument goes that the right to abortion does not fall within this category. Until the latter part of the 20th century, such a right was entirely unknown to American law. And I'm going to break this, this paragraph down a lot because I have a lot of frustrations with it. Okay, so again, it says the right to abortion does not fall within this category. Until the latter part of the 20th century, such a right was entirely unknown in American law. Indeed, when the 14th Amendment was adopted, three quarters of the states made abortion a crime at all stages of pregnancy. The abortion right is also critically different from any other right in this court has held to fall within the 14th Amendment's protection of quote-unquote liberty. Rose defenders characterized the abortion right as similar to the rights recognized in past decisions involving matters such as intimate sexual relations, contraception, marriage, but abortion is fundamentally different as both Roe and Casey acknowledged because it destroys, that both, uh, destroys what those decisions called fetal life and what the law now before us describes as an unborn human being. Okay, so here's the problem with this argument, okay? The right to abortion does not fall within this category. Until the latter part of the 20th century, such a right was entirely unknown to American law, all right? So what he's doing here, what Sam Alito is doing here, is trying to say that there's no fundamental basis in, that is deeply rooted in American history and tradition and implicit to the concept of ordered liberty, okay? That's the, that's the argument that he's making here. He's trying to back up. Uh, his chosen um, delineation out of Washington versus Glicks, uh, Glucksburg. Okay. Uh, and then in say, then he continues, indeed, when the 14th Amendment was adopted, three quarters of the states made abortion a crime at all stages of pregnancy. All right. So here's a problem. 
Uh, those two sentences directly contradict each other. Those two sentences directly contradict each other. Now, again, I'd like to reiterate, this is a first draft. Okay, this is a first draft. This probably won't be the final opinion. Okay, this might even be a dissenting opinion. We don't know at this point. All right, so this is a first opinion. So I'm going to analyze it based on that perspective. Okay, but those two statements fundamentally contradict each other. You can't say it was entirely unknown and then say, well, three fourths, three quarters of all states made it a crime. Well, then they obviously knew it. Okay. So you can see the conflict there that exists within those statements. Now, I think what he meant to say was probably until the latter part of the 20th century, nobody really had anything to do with abortion and nobody recognized that uh, there was some sort of rights for women to have abortions. I think that's what he meant to say, but he didn't. And therefore he created a very contradictory argument. Okay. The conclusion does not f uh, fit within the um, subsumed premises that are before it. All right. So, there's a big problem there, okay? And then he goes on to argue that it doesn't fall within the 14th Amendment protection of liberty, okay? And so this is really when you start getting into the big political arguments of, of uh, abortion, okay? And I, I really don't want to spend too much time on this, uh, but I do want to talk about what they are, Okay. So, as, as Sam Alito said in the beginning of, of his opinion, he says that, um, you know, there's three parties. There's those that think that uh, women should have a right to choose. There's those that, that think that abortion should, should be outlawed because, uh, you know, a fetus has rights. Uh, and then there's a third group that says, okay, um, you know, for the most part, we, we think that abortion probably shouldn't be allowed. But in these particular circumstances, it should be okay. And those, those circumstances usually fall within like rape and incest. Uh, and, and unfortunately the one that's often between those two, the one that's really the most often criticized is rape. Um, and, and as to whether or not it should be allowed there, that's where most of the division becomes within that third group of people. Um, but anyways, that's the, the, the big argument. And so, fundamentally becomes a religious issue. So when we talk about this case, we have to start talking about First Amendment rights, don't we? Because First Amendment guarantees freedom of expression, freedom of speech, uh, freedom of assembly, and freedom of religion. Okay, so we have to understand that people have fundamental religious rights. And so if my fundamental religious right is that life begins at conception, then it's my opinion that we need to protect that life from any possible harm, okay? And and that's understandable to some degree, right? You can you can see where those people are coming from uh, when they make that argument, that religious argument. You understand what they mean uh, and, and why they want to do that. And that that's, you know, I think most people would say that's an admirable reason for wanting to... Um, not allow abortion. Okay. Um, but 
there's a lot of problems with that in that if we decide that abortion is to be protected under the argument of religion believes that life begins at conception or within so many days of conception, uh, the big problem is, well, now the government is officially recognizing religion in a law that it's creating. And that was a huge problem with Mississippi's law and a bunch of Mississippi's laws that they've made about this, most of which were struck down. This is the first success that they've really had. Um, but that's the big concern. Are we going to be ratifying a national religion through this? Okay. So that's a bit of a concern. Now, again, I want to state, look, I'm just trying to present different sides of the argument. I'm trying to present both a political and legal opinions from, from both sides. And at the very end of this, I will give you my personal opinion. So before you jump down my throat for either side, just give me a, a second. Okay. So then the second group says that ultimately, um, when life starts is at viability. Okay. Viability means the point at which the fetus can survive outside of the womb. All right. So Roe, which is a 50 year old case at this point, um, at the time they said that viability typically usually happens at the end of the second trimester. So if you have no idea how pregnancy works, basically there's three trimesters, get it? Trimesters. Okay. So there's three different stages. There's the first three months, the second three months and the last three months. Um, and so because of that, um, there are different, um, standards. Er, there's a lot of different things that we're looking at, but again, they said in Roe v. Wade that really when it gets to the end of the second semester, that's when the, the fetus is truly viable. It can exist outside of the womb. And you can make arguments, and certainly with today's medical technology, that time has gone down quite a bit to where I, I don't know the exact months or weeks exactly of the youngest, but there was one that I think made it to less than less than halfway through the second trimester and the, the baby survived, okay? Um, but the, the amount of, of medical technology that went into saving that child, which thankfully it did, you know, isn't one available to everybody. And two, that's literally a one out of a million chance. Okay. It, it's not statistically something that you can hang your hat on. So when you, um, are, are looking at, so sorry, I got sidetracked. So that's what the second group is saying. There's a point at which it becomes a viable, a, a viable child. And at that point, Almost everybody says, all right, if the child is viable, absent some sort of harm directly to the mother, you know, most people can agree. All right. That's probably when we should say abortion shouldn't happen. Okay. In fact, an abortion at those stages can often be uh, very, very uh, harmful to the mother. Um, uh, some in, in some of those cases, not all, not most. In some of those cases, they can be very, very harmful to the mother. Um not just uh, physically, but emotionally as well. And so 
um, you know, that's kind of what the second group is saying. You know, up until that stage, you know, the, the child's not viable, therefore it doesn't have quote-unquote life, and therefore, uh, ultimately, it's the decision of the woman who is carrying the child to decide whether or not they want to carry that child to term or not, okay? So that's the second group's argument, all right? So now we've kind of talked about all three groups, okay? And then again, to reiterate, the third group is basically, uh, let's, let's pretty much prohibit it always, unless in cases of rape or incest, and then in rape, it kind of depends on the person. Sometimes they say yes, sometimes they say no, all right? So it's all kind of, that group is just kind of weird. They're, they can't make up their mind on what they want, and they all disagree. Sorry, I've been talking too long, so I needed to take a drink. <laughs> so, those are the political arguments. And at this point in the opinion, this is when Sam Alito starts going into more of a political and philosophical discussion of what's going on than actually looking at the legality of what's going on. And this is where it begins to get frustrating for me to read this case because it becomes so much more predicated on, um, excuse me, so much more predicated on po politics um, and, and philosophical underpinnings and religious undertones than it does on what does the law actually say, all right? So in this next highlight from the authors, it says Rose abuse of judicial or uh, let me start at the beginning. Sorry to thesis, the doctrine on which Casey's controlling opinion was based. Excuse me, does not compel unending adherence to Rose abuse of judicial authority. Roe was egregiously wrong from the start. Its reasoning was exceptionally weak and decision has had damaging consequences and far from bringing about national settlement on the abortion issue, Roe and Casey have inflamed debate and deepened division. It is time to heed the Constitution and return the issues of abortion to the people's elected representatives. This permissibility, the permissibility of abortion and the limitations upon it are to be resolved like most important questions in our dem democracy by citizens trying to persuade one another and then voting. And that's Casey, Justice Scalia concurring in part and dissenting in part. Um, that is what the Constitution and the rule of law demand, and that is fucking wrong because that's a dissenting and concurring opinion, which has literally, that's the weakest thing you can do. When you're a Supreme Court justice and you dissent in part and concur in part, then you might as well have not even written anything for your opinion. So it carries no weight. In no way does this have anything to do with stare decisis. So why the fuck he decided it there? I don't know. But it's just like the most asinine legal reasoning that I've seen maybe in my entire life. Like he goes here in, in this entire highlighted section here. And if you're just following along, this is on page six of the, the, the document. Um, it's just his personal opinion. Nothing more than that. No personal, no law. It doesn't, doesn't use any, fundamental starry diseases that he demands that it have he doesn't do that it's just his opinion okay now again 
This is first draft. This could be in it, could not be in it, could be the holding opinion, might not be the holding opinion. We don't know yet, okay? This is just the first draft, okay? So then it goes and talks about the Mississippi law, which basically says, except for a medical emergency uh, or uh, severe fetal abnormality, you basically cannot have any abortion past 15 weeks, which is about, um, that's that would be uh, just into the second trimester. Um, the thing with that, let me make sure I'm getting my months right. Four, four, 12. Yeah. Okay. So that'd be just into the second trimester. There's a lot of women that don't know that they're pregnant until halfway through the second trimester. So, you know, and look at the end of the day, guess what? I'm a cis white male talking about abortion. So as far as I'm concerned, my opinion means basically jack shit, but, um, I saw my wife go through pregnancy. Look, at, at the end of the day, I don't know what it's like to be a woman. Uh, I don't know what it's like to have a period every month. I don't know what it's like to carry a child. I don't know what it's like to give childbirth. I don't know any of those things. So I can't speak to those things as if I know them. I can speak about the experiences that I've seen my wife and other women go through. And, and, and my experience with pregnancy with, with, you know, my wife carrying our son. And that's about as far as I can go. But ultimately I don't, I, I can't, I can't talk for that group of people. Okay. Uh, because I, I'm not that person. Okay. Um, and so this law probably written by a number of people that look much more like me, um, than anybody else. Um, basically says that this is the, the, the limit. So it's not outright prohibiting abortion. It's just saying, look, we're, we're creating this deadline and this deadline's a particularly early deadline. Okay. Um, and, and for what it's worth, that's, it's not super far off from Roe v. Wade. Okay. In the, the decision in Roe v. Wade and kind of how they set up the schedule for how abortions are supposed to work and, it's again a very convoluted case that's really kind of the limit into where after about 20 weeks is where it kind of gets into like all right now we have to start looking at other factors okay so then um he goes and talks about all of this stuff that you've heard before about uh unborn humans beating heart begins beating at uh, five or six weeks uh, at eight weeks, an unborn human being begins to move the womb. At nine, all basic, basic physiological functions are present. At 10 weeks, all vital organs begin to function. And hair, fingernails, and toenails begin to form at 11 weeks. And an unborn human being's diaphragm is developing. And he or she may move about freely in the womb at 12 weeks. The unborn human being has taken on to the human form in all relevant respects. And that's quoting from a case which is quoting from um, some article on on uh, fetal health, which has been widely disregarded in the medical and um, health community uh, as being mostly incorrect. So that citation is not a particularly good one. Okay. 
Uh, talks about who the respondents are, which is the this abortion clinic, which I, I it's kind of unfair to phrase them as that because it's a women's health organization, um, and that they do considerably more than just give abortions, and so that's a pretty unfair representation of who they are, um, which is kind of infuriating as well. So if you can't tell by now, you kind of know where I'm heading with this. Um, and so at the end of this, the arguing is, the argument is, um, one, if this becomes the holding opinion of the court, um, Abortion is going to be left up to the states, okay? So states can decide how they want to regulate abortion, all right? There's basis in law for that, all right? Okay, Amendment 10 says, the powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution, nor prohibited to it by the states, are reserved to the states respectively or to the people, Okay. The 10th Amendment, that's something important. It's very important, right? Uh, because that just says, like, if the Constitution doesn't explicitly give the federal government the power to regulate a particular issue, then you have to leave it up to the states. And so the argument here in this particular case is, well, the Constitution doesn't directly talk about abortion, and therefore um, it has no right to regulate abortion. That's a state's rights issue. Well, it's more than that, right? The Constitution actually doesn't directly say, I can't, I am disallowed from discriminating against a person for being different than me, okay? The Constitution does not explicit, explicitly preclude me from doing that, okay? There is a law that explicitly precludes me from doing that, and guess what? That law is based on the Constitution. So you could argue that in reality, states should just be able to regulate whether or not they want to allow discrimination or not. Okay. There's nowhere in the Constitution that says, I can't sexually harass somebody. There's a law that says that I can't. But under the argumentation that's listed in this case, I could make the equal argument that, well, let's just leave it up to states to regulate whether or not I'm allowed to sexually harass somebody. And I get it. That's been a fundamental issue in American history for as long as we can remember. Where are federal rights? Where do the federal federal rights begin? Where do they end? Where are states' rights end? or begin, where do they end, and where do individual rights begin, and where do they end? That's been a fundamental problem for 250 years now, okay? 48, 248 years now. So it's a long-standing argument, and it's a hard argument to nail down. And to be honest, 50% of what the Supreme Court has done in their history and and especially their most important keystone cases has been delineating things that are 
what states are allowed to do and what the federal government is allowed to do. So it's a really hard thing to determine. You know, is this something that specifically states are allowed to, um, to allow, allowed to, uh, make the, um, the rules on, or is it something that, um, the, the federal government should have to, um, be able to regulate. Okay. So, you know, I'm not saying that this is an easy decision to make, but we've made a lot of decisions in the past, especially the past 75 years that said, if we allow states to regulate these particular issues, things like discrimination, things like environmental laws, um, things like sexual harassment, uh, if we let the states regulate those, what we're going to have, we're afraid and we may not, but we're afraid that there's the potential for something called a race to the bottom. Okay. And what that means is that we want to, that, that if we, we allow states to regulate discrimination and sexual harassment differently then the state that has the least restrictions on discrimination and sexual harassment are the states that where all the businesses are going to go. And then it's going to create a very bad situation in those states. And so we can't, leave that up to the states so that they have that race to the bottom. And where you can see where that has actually happened is with certain taxation that are specifically allowed for states that aren't allowed for the federal government. And so what you'll see is you'll see states go, uh, or with environmental regulations, you'll see a lot of uh, companies go to places that have less strict uh, environmental regulations um, to because they don't have to spend as much money, right? California usually has the most strict. They'll go to Texas or they'll go to Florida or they'll go to Arizona instead of California uh, because instead of having to pay $10 million to install you know, a piece of hardware, they only have to pay a million dollars and donate to you know, some political campaign. And then it, that's more money in their pockets, right? So... That's a big fear that we have with the Roe v. Wade case. And, and I, you know, it's not something that's super explicitly discussed within Roe v. Wade or its progeny even, but it is a concern, you know, will there become a race to the bottom where states will eventually impinge on the rights of people to get an abortion or not? Okay. So that's a huge, huge fear. And that's something that, that, you know, when, if this becomes the holding opinion, um, and they say that, look, there's no fundamental right for women to control their own bodies. Um, then states are going to be able to start regulating more and more strictly, uh, on things like abortion. And the concern is, well, how far is that going to go? All right. So I guarantee you, if this is how this case turns out and this becomes the actual opinion, and again, this is the first draft. Okay. This is the first draft. It's not the final opinion. But if this becomes the final opinion, Mississippi's law will be changed. They're going to completely outlaw abortion. Okay. Uh, they might have a few exceptions for things like rape and incest. In fact, I, my guess is they'll probably just have exceptions for incest. 
and even that will probably be limited because it's Mississippi. Um, and so you'll see that. Um, and, um, the big problem is, well, then what's next? Are they going to create a law that says you don't have the right to get birth control or you have, or are they going to create a law that says that you don't have the right to get your tube aside? Are they going to create a law that says I don't have a right to go get a vasectomy, which they're not going to do because again, I'm a cis white male. Um, but are they going to go down that path? And that's the fear. Um, so it's not just about abortion. It's about all of those other rights that exist within a woman's right to control her body. Okay. Um, and that's truly the question that is consistently danced around in all of these decisions, whether it's Casey, whether it's Roe or whether it's this Jackson case. Okay. That is the issue that is really bounced around. Do women have the right to control their body? So here's a, here's a really interesting question to ask, right? Let's say abortion continues to be legal. Let's say this opinion doesn't happen and abortion continues to be legal. And let's say um, two people engage in consensual sexual relations and the woman gets pregnant and the woman wants to have an abortion. The man doesn't. Who has the right? to does does the man have the right to say you can't have an abortion what weight should his opinion carry in saying that you shouldn't have an abortion could they come up with a contract that says look you don't have to have an abortion or you i don't want you to have an abortion so i will take this kid you won't be on the 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 um the birth certificate, you'll have no claim to this child. You'll never have to pay child support for this. Could they come up to a contract? Would that contract be legal or not? Um, but ultimately, guess what? Who's carrying that child? The woman is. I know if I was in that situation, I, I couldn't, I wouldn't want her to have an abortion. I would want to keep the kid and I would do everything I could to try and say, I will take care of this child. You know, if I was in that situation, but at the end of the day, again, I'm not the one carrying that child. I'm not the one carrying that baby. And that's what a lot of people's opinions are. Okay. That, that we're, we're, what right do I have to, to say that? Right. But what right do I have to tell anybody what to do with their body? There's a lot of really shitty things that all of us do to our bodies that I can sit there and say, you shouldn't do that. But should that be a law for me to say that? Probably not. Right. So if, if you're, let's say you're more conservative on this issue and let's say that you, you are more in line with the prohibition of, of abortion uh, uh, on any level. Okay. Um, not all, but a lot of people, um, and here's an argument that I've heard with that is that, well, if you're in a state that outlaws an abortion, just move to another state that allows it. Well, that's not exactly easy to do, right? It, 
Go look at the cost of housing anywhere right now. Just go on Zillow, look it up. It's insane. It's stupid no matter where you go. Okay? Plus, get up, move all of your stuff, find a new job. That's a lot of work to do if if you want to move to a different state that, that allows it. And while that's an, an argument that I certainly understand because I kind of have a similar perspective on a different issue, but let me kind of break this down and analogize this to you. All right. So I'm right here. Bill of Rights. Oh, that's not the Bill of Rights. It's the Bill of Rights. Second Amendment. Well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Guns, right? Guns. I am a proponent of the Second Amendment. I have guns. I support gun ownership. But I also support strict regulation of guns. Okay? This doesn't say you get to own tanks. This doesn't say you get to own nuclear missiles. And trust me, every class that I teach where we go over the Second Amendment, I always ask that question. Should you have the right to own a nuclear missile? I've had about four students out of 400 raise their hand and say yes. And most of the time they were saying it to be devil's advocates. Okay. So. At the end of the day, guess what? We have a right to own arms, but every state has different regulations. Okay. So if I live in Mississippi, Mississippi outlaws abortion. So I just say, all right, I need to have an abortion. I'm going to go to California, have my abortion and then come back. Mississippi can actually make it illegal for you to do that. So you'd have to move from Mississippi to California before you have your abortion. Well, here's the thing. In most states, you have to live there for a year before you can become a citizen. How long does uh, how long does um, uh, pregnancy take? Nine months. So you're not going to be a citizen by the time that happens. So they could theoretically go out and use a long arm statute to arrest you. Um, and I, I like I doubt California would extradite you, but whatever. You get the point. And so where that analogy comes from is California very restrictive on. Second Amendment, right? Um, you know, I have a, a handgun and it has a 13 round um, magazine in it. Uh, that's not legal in California. Okay. If I live in California, I have to get a 10 round magazine. I can't even have my 13 round magazine in California. Okay. So if I live in California, and I have my gun with my 10 round magazine and I go over to Arizona where they give you a gun when you enter the state for free. Um, and I get a 13 round magazine and bring it back to California. I don't get to tell California. Well, I didn't buy it in California. I got it in Arizona. Therefore it's legal for me to have. That's not, <laughs> that's not how that works, right? That's not how that works. And so you can use that same argument. Well, if you don't like California's gun laws, move somewhere else. And there's veracity to that. There's truth. And you know what? It's kind of funny. That's what's been happening a lot lately. There are a lot of people in California that don't like California's gun laws, and they're moving to other states that have more, ironically, liberal gun laws. Okay. I'm using the, the, uh, the uh, international relations definition of, of liberal in that sense. Okay. 
Um, so that that's kind of stuff can happen. All right. So what I'm saying is that it, states can restrict abortion on on a level to where it's if you're a citizen of that state, there's no possible way you can get an abortion unless it's done illegally. And that is another huge issue is that they've when you outlaw abortion, there's a lot of statistical basis that says that abortions don't actually decrease. Just the number of illegal abortions increases, right? So again, to tie this back to the Second Amendment, I'm sure you've all seen that bumper sticker that says, if you outlaw guns, only outlaws will have guns, right? And there's that's same thing here, right? These look, and at the end of the day, end of the day, these are two very, very separate issues. Um, and for the most part, they're they're regulated under two different, very different laws. Why? Because Second Amendment is actually in the Constitution. Um and so they're regulated very differently, but I'm just trying to kind of analogize a little bit here. Um, and so if you're, if you start outlawing a bunch of guns that people legally have now, then all of those people, are they just going to get rid of them? Yeah. Go to the middle of Texas and say, give me your guns and see how well that works out for you. Okay. Um, they're not just going to turn them over. So, people are still going to have those guns. They're just going to have them illegally. All right. So you, you take that exact same argument and you can apply it to abortion. Okay. Um, and again, not a perfect analogy. I'll, I'll admit to that, but, um, you know, that, that is what it is. So I'm going to mention one last thing that I have a problem with this opinion. And again, first draft an opinion, not the final draft. So my last big problem is, and again, I haven't read through all of this yet. I've read through most of it. I haven't read through all of it. And my big problem is the Supreme Court, its number one job is to be a fact finder. Okay. They are supposed to find what are the facts and what is the best facts for our Constitution. And in this particular opinion, in Samuel Alito's opinion, in this case, he does not do that. He relies on political opinions. He uses science that's outdated and he disregards arguments that are extremely important in the decision of whether or not abortion is a fundamental substantive due process right for women. And that's that's problematic for me. That being said, that happens in so many cases at the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court is so funny because it will write an opinion like Marbury versus Madison um where it's kind of funny because in Marbury versus Madison they could have very easily given themselves more power than what they had. But they said, no, we're, we're actually taking our, our power away uh, because it's too much. And then they gave that to, they kind of gave themselves another power. But a lot of the times the Supreme court is very, very good about keeping themselves in check, but then you'll have a lot of cases and both sides of the political spectrum are equally bad at doing this where they will, 
have a case and make an argument that is um not based in fact not based in legal rationality but based on political opinions and that those kind of cases are really frustrating to see and sometimes you have to do that right with brown versus board of education you had to do that okay because it's the right thing to do ethically morally it was the right thing to do and so there are times where you have to go beyond the scope of law i don't believe that this is one of those cases where that's necessary because to disregard the science of what's going on in this particular case is to disregard a major factor in the question of the legality of abortion. And that's problematic for me. Okay. So that's the last thing I want to say on this. Um, and again, if you ever have any questions, you can always ask in the, the, the comment section or whatever, or email me or whatever. Uh, I'm always happy to, to discuss this stuff. And, and, and I'm not trying to like, if you disagree with me, I don't want you to feel bad for disagreeing with me. That's fine. I, that's okay. We're not supposed to all agree with each other. I'm just telling you what I see. And I'm trying to, again, present this from a legal perspective as possible. So I'm going to take five minutes. And I'm going to explain to you what my personal opinion is, uh, because then I actually really have to go. Cause I have to go shower real quick before my interview. Um, so, um, so my opinion is this, I, I, I think that women have a right to abortions. Women have a right to control their own body and abortion doesn't just come down to whether or not you're impacting uh, a potential human life or not. I think that's obvious, you know, and I, I certainly don't believe that any woman that has had an abortion in the past has ever gone into it lightly. I don't think it's ever been a very simple decision for any woman ever. And I know a lot of women that have had abortions have had a lot of emotional stress um, and, and emotional issues that uh, result from that abortion. And it's a very tough thing and it's not something that's taken lightly. And I think the big problem with, some of the arguments that are made in this opinion and some of the arguments that are against abortion, um, some quote unquote pro-life arguments, what they fail to recognize are those factors is that you're, you're, you're disregarding a a person's decision that they have to make. That's very difficult for them that they don't want to make on their own. And, um, but at the end of the day, it might be the most appropriate thing that they have to do and we don't have a right again like i said before i'm a cis white male i don't know what it's like to be a woman have a baby to to carry a baby anything that goes along with that i don't i don't know and so you know i all i can do is lend my support to to say you should have the right to have control of your own body And so with abortion comes all of those other questions of, you know, how far do we go into regulating a woman's body? And you have to ask yourself, if men were the ones that were having the babies, would this even be a question? If men were the ones that had babies, would this even be a question? Would this even be at the Supreme Court? I don't think it would have been. I don't think it would have been. 
Um, and I think there's a lot of science. There's actually economic data that backs up Roe v. Wade. Uh, if you ever read the book Freakonomics, it's it's a fascinating perspective. I think there's parts of it that have been disproven, um, but it's it's a fascinating look at Roe v. Wade. And so, um, it, my last concern is is a lot of people that are very pro life, anti abortion, could give a shit of that person once it's outside of the womb they only care about it while it's there and then the second it's outside of the womb they don't care about it they don't want to support it they don't want to be there for it they don't want to provide for it they don't want to educate it they don't want to do anything with it so you kind of can't have it both ways so those are the two big reasons why i personally think that abortion should be legal i think it's a protected right in our constitution under the ninth amendment um and that ultimately women have the right to control their own bodies and if that's the decision that the woman wants to make um then ultimately who am i to tell her that she can't make that decision or that she's a bad person for making that decision or whatever you know it's not the decision that i would necessarily make and for most women that I talk to on this issue, it's not the decision that they would make, but there are times that it, it just, it happens. And it's, it's really funny because in at literally the exact same time, there was a case going on against the Catholic church. There was one in Arizona where, um, a woman at a Catholic hospital performed an abortion for a woman because um, if she didn't perform the abortion, the mom was going to lose her life. Um, and so she, the, uh, this nurse performed an emergency um, abortion. And then there was a case at a Catholic hospital in Colorado at the exact same time. Uh, it, there was a malpractice suit uh, whereby one of the medical personnel uh, caused either one or both twins to die uh, while they were still in the womb uh, because of something that they did wrong. And at the exact same time, the the Catholic Church was making the legal argument in Arizona that that fetus had a right to life, and then in Cal in Colorado, saying that that fetus wasn't viable and didn't actually have life. So at the same time, the Catholic Church was making totally contrary arguments to best fit their legal point of view, or not their legal point of view, but their their legal situation. And so you can kind of see how it can be used kind of at a whim with however they want to follow it. Okay. So, um, you know, I, that, that's, it's just kind of a funny story to say, I mean, it's not funny, it's damn depressing but you know even even from that religious perspective there are plenty of times when a lot of religious people have made the argument that um you know you know religious leaders have have made pregnant women do things that have cost the them their child and um they basically when you do that it's murder um and so they've been charged with murder and they've made the argument well that wasn't a viable child and so therefore it's not murder and so it's very pick and choose in a lot of different places so if we just say all right it's legal in this case 
then it becomes a restriction on, okay, now we have to go start looking at intent and then murder laws apply. And that's where states can kind of come in and choose how they want to enforce that. And there's still a lot of leeway where states can enforce certain parts of abortion based on on Roe v. Wade and its progeny. So, you know, again, that's that's my opinion. You don't have to have my opinion. I, you know, I, I just, like I said, I try and tell you how I get my opinion, my legal basis, my, my rational basis for it. And, and you don't have to have my opinion. That's fine. You know, I drive by 30,000 signs between where I live and where I work that tell me that that are all anti-abortion. Uh, and that's fine. Those, a lot of the people I meet that are, that, that are anti-abortion are really good people. And, um, you know, I wish they could get to a point where they could see that it's more than about it's more about women's rights, but, um, at the end of the day, that's how I feel. I feel like we need to protect women's rights. So anyways, this was a very, very long podcast and I apologize. Uh, I might have to cut this up and release it as two. Um, but unfortunately I'm not going to be able to play games. I actually will probably be able to play games for a little while after, uh, my interview, but, uh, I have to go get ready for my interview. Um, so for those of you that watch live, thank you. I appreciate it. I had actually a decent number of viewers. Um, for those of you that are listening, I uh, hope you enjoyed it. And um, I might be back on later. All right. Have a good one, everybody.